0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. Can you remember when it was hot, really, really hot? Now move that thought to the height of summer in Brisbane with humid tropical heat, too hot to sleep at night and building up to a climax of a drenching storm. This is where Sophie Overett has set her book, The Rabbits. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you for having me. It's not only the weather, the climaxes with the storm, so does the rabbit story. So let's start with the rabbit family.
2: Where is Rosemary? Rosemary Rabbit is in an aged care facility in Brisbane, um, so about an hour out of town, um, where she is kind of, she's grappling with dementia, um, which is a very cha- big challenge for the family overall, but particularly her adult daughter, Delia. So
1: Rosie had two daughters and we learn in the first page that the older daughter, Bo, has died. How's the relationship with Delia going now?
2: Not so good, not so good. (laughs) Um, It was really interesting to explore the way that family relationships break down after a loss and after a grief. I remember reading something a very long time ago which was about how a death in the family, particularly the death of a child, usually either brings a family closer than ever or it really tears them apart. One of the big inspirations for this novel overall was exploring the way that while the love is still there between Rosie and Delia, the loss of Beau, Delia's sister, and Rosie's first daughter is something that they haven't really been able to overcome.
1: Well, Delia has her own daughter now. Olive's 20 years old. How's that mother-daughter relationship going?
2: (laughs) A bit strained as well. Um, Intergenerational trauma is also really key to this novel. And Delia's ruptured relationship with her own mother is something that was brought to her relationship with her daughter, whether she wanted it to be or not. And they've got a very strained relationship because Olive really wants to be seen as an adult, but also feels a degree of distance from her mother. And and she doesn't know about Bo's death or the trauma that, that has haunted her mother's relationship with her own mother. But in some ways, it's still there. It's still present in their relationship. And it's caused a rift that neither of them really know how to tackle.
1: What about Olive's relationship with her father, Ed? It's...
2: Different. It's a bit more traditional, I guess, in terms of that dynamic where Ed's recently left the family. He's shacked up with another woman, and Olive blames her mother as well for that rift. Um, in no small part, because she herself has distance from her mother, and she projects that distance onto her parents' relationship. Um, and so she has this kind of very idealized idea of who her father is, when that's really not not reflected in the way that he treats her or acts.
1: So Olive's actually quite rude to a mother and a father, <laughs> she is, and she yeah. is also to her younger brothers. There's sixteen-year-old Charlie and Benjamin, who's eleven. Mm-hmm. But these two boys, these two brothers, have really got significant personalities in themselves.
2: Yeah, they they were really fun to explore and really fun to write. It was kind of, it was a lot of fun to explore. The three rabbit children is very, very different characters. And, and Olive's incredibly prickly as, you, as you've identified. <laughs> But Charlie and Aunt Benjamin are quite different. Charlie is quite quiet and very studious and, but also quite secretive in the same way that his mother is, whereas Benjamin's kind of the opposite of that, but Benjamin's quite gregarious. He's very much a character who can bring people together around him. I mean, he's very loving. He's a very loving yeah, boy. He's,
1: he's, he is, and that's why he develops a new friend in Poppy who mm-hmm. just doesn't worry about his insecurity and, you know, 11-year-old still wedding yourself.
2: Yeah, exactly. This novel is very much, in a lot of ways, about people reconciling with different types of trauma, um, and Benjamin's bed still is is very much a part of that. And it's kind of this manifestation about how it gets worse again when Charlie disappears. Well, let's um, get on to the crux of the novel. Yeah. Family
1: tension. Now, I did talk about the heat and everybody's on edge, and then, as you say, Charlie disappears, and it's the stress on the family. How does big sister Olive cope?
2: Not well. She, she kind of spirals out. She's already, she's a very lost character generally and someone who's really struggling at that point between adolescence and adulthood and, and trying to figure out who she is and, and to suddenly then become the person with the missing brother. And not only the missing brother, but Charlie, who she believes is kind of everyone's favourite in the family. He's the one that everyone feels the deeper connection to, who's easier, I think, to deal with. He's not lashing out at people. He's not aggressive with people in the way that Olive is and he's not kind of clingy like Benjamin is. He's just kind of present usually. So to have him removed from the story sees a lot of these characters spiralling in different ways, but Olive perhaps the most clearly um, as she kind of starts to party a lot more, she throws herself into relationships that maybe aren't good for her or actually where she wants to be And, and she does all of that without connecting with people which is actually really what she wants she wants that connection and she wants to feel connected to the people around her and she doesn't
1: and Delia the mother insists on continuing her work so what's Delia's job
2: Delia is an art teacher at a local kind of TAFE sort of college and she's also an artist but she hasn't been practicing art for many years at this point and Griff <laughs> Griff is one of her students and he's been a student for a couple of years and they have recently a few months before the start of the novels started having an affair um, so it's from page 12. Griff is sprawled on the floor beside her desk naked except for a pair of gaudy orange socks his tattoos creep up his side and across his shoulders like moss on some age-old statue his sketchbook is open in his lap a Nord pencil in his mouth like a bad habit, like he isn't one of hers. There are flecks of black paint caught in the grooves between his teeth from where he'd mangled the tool with his mouth, and, God, she hates that she likes the picture.
1: Oh, yes, yes. So <laughs> I must say that Griff is just a little bit older than Olive, the daughter. There is a lot to be said about this relationship. In the rabbit household, there's a storage cupboard, and along with the moths, there are baby clothes and photographs. And as she said, Delia finds her painting easel at the back and starts painting again. What's the subject that she paints over and over again?
2: She paints Charlie, her missing son. Um, but then as the story goes on, she starts painting someone else too, um, which is her sister, Bo.
1: Well, yes, amongst the photos, it's mm. Olive who finds a photo of someone she's never heard of, and it's Bo. So why hasn't Delia told her children that she had a sister?
2: I think a lot of it's the fact that Delia just hasn't reconciled with, with losing Beau in the first place. It's in so many ways Beau feels like this grenade that's still live, you know, she's there in the story and it's, there's no sort of sense of closure because they don't know what happened to Beau. They know that she was found dead in, in a creek bed um, but she was found after she'd been missing for quite a while. So there's, there was no sense of closure. There was no sense of why she went missing. And on top of that, for that then to have caused this kind of huge rupture in her family and, and blown up her relationship with her mother so badly, there's just this kind of Sense that Delia just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. She thinks it's done. She thinks it's in the past. She thinks that there's no point in bringing it up to her children because she doesn't think she doesn't know how to talk about it. She doesn't know how to process it, which is why when she starts to paint Bo in the later half of the novel, it's very much about this kind of reconciliation with the memory of her and trying to trying to let herself remember her in a way that's that allows the pain in.
1: Yeah. Female friendships I think are at the core of this novel too Mm. and Delia surprises herself with a new person that she actually relates all these stories to. So who's that?
2: It's her neighbour, November. Delia strikes up this friendship with November, which she doesn't really expect to at all, Um, and she ends up talking to her a lot. And I think for me I think it's really interesting the ways that I think female friendships can unlock parts of us, particularly in if we've been isolated or particularly if we've been kind of removed in a way that's protective of ourselves. But I also think it's interesting where Delia and November don't know each other very well and Delia does open up a lot to her and I think there's something about kind of it being easier to tell someone who knows nothing else about you these kind of fears and traumas and things that are so deeply embedded in you and have such deep roots in you um, than it is to tell somebody that you know really well, you know, because Delia doesn't really tell anyone close to her about any of the things that are happening until the very end of the novel. Um, (laughs) And she just doesn't really have that sort of relationship with other people. And I think during the space of the novel is just, it's really an outlet for her in a way that she's not expecting.
1: Yes, she talks to a November about her lack of being a good mother or, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of a supportive mother with female friendships. It's Olive. She was talking to Mindy and found out that Mindy can do something rather incredible.
2: What can Mindy do? Mindy can very short-term restart electrical devices and control (laughs) electrical devices.
1: (laughs) These superhero tricks or magic realism or as Rosemary Rabbit had called it many years previously, a little disappearing act. (laughs) And, you know, we we sort of left wondering about the things that we, we don't quite understand.
2: And this is from page 191. This is Olive speaking to a friend of hers, Lux. Have you ever seen something you can't explain, Olive asks. Sure, Lux says with a shrug, her tone flippant. Shooting stars and birthmarks and cell phone towers and flying foxes. I can't tell you how a plane doesn't drop from the sky or how your fingernails keep growing after you die or why your skin can sometimes heal so quick and other times take forever. I see things every day that I can't explain.
1: Delia even has the ability to feel storms and this is from the book in my skin and in my bones it whispers at your neck these tropical storms feel beyond weather apps and meteorology they brew in the witch's cauldron of the north and rumble like a deity prowl across the river until they explode about the city vitriolic and howling we have the heat constantly in this book the birds with gaping beaks, the quickness of food to go bad, and the festooning of maggots. <laughs> but it's not these insects, it's a little rabbit that features in the section of the books and a ring. But Delia has made such a point of never marrying her partner. Why the ring?
2: It's, I like the idea that it's kind of things that aren't really, aren't really there. I mean, you've got that with the rabbit as well. The rabbit's not there, but that's their surname. And the same with the ring. It's this thing where it's kind of it's this idea of union and unity, I think, which is so tied um, to the ring. And while Dillian ever wears it in a lot of ways, you know, unions at the heart of this book, it's about that coming back together. It's about the family rediscovering what it is to be a family and they don't need the ceremony to be a family about unity and
1: also about art I've learned a lot I learned about the ABC method and what a cameo (laughs) of color is and also some Australian artists Hilda Ricks Nichols, Thea Proctor and
2: Olive Cotton
1: so are are you an artist yourself?
2: I am more of an art appreciator than an artist (laughs) (laughs) I do love, I do draw. I don't think I'm very good though. I'm certainly not Delia, not as good as Delia is. But it's something that I really love. I'm very inspired by art generally. And it was something that the process of doing art is something that I really enjoy, even though I'm not very good at it. Um, And to be able to capture that in a character like Delia. And in particular, I was very intrigued by the way that art can kind of capture these moments in time which feels really important to this novel which is so much about being seen and and in some ways being captured in a positive way you know about what it means to be kind of held what it means to be seen what it means to be understood by people that you love
1: well Sophie, you won the penguin literary prize with this book and i can understand why Yes, congratulations. And (laughs) the Kathleen Mitchell Award. What's
2: the Kathleen Mitchell Award? It's a prize run by the Australia Council for a manuscript published by a writer under 30. So that was pretty exciting to to win.
1: So in the middle of a heatwave in Brisbane, a son disappears. This causes a family having to reconnect, share their secrets, surprisingly make new friendships, and investigate their skills, be it in art or disappearing. In the Rabbits by Sophie Overt. So thank you very much, Sophie.
2: Thank you so much. That was lovely. really appreciate it. Yeah, you had great questions. And now it's David's turn.
0: Innocence and experience collide in Mark Brandy's latest work, The Others. So, Mark, welcome back to 3CR. Great to be here again, David. Thanks for having me. To begin with. Your narrator is an 11-year-old boy and we never actually discover his name till the end. But the question is, how did you find that 11-year-old voice?
3: The writing of this novel really began back in 2016. So I I wrote a short story back then which was actually a fictionalised account of some real events from my youth. We had a farm outside of town and we had sheep on the farm and having sheep there, we had um, problems with vermin like foxes, rabbits, mice and the like. And we used to go hunting out on the farm, which I had really mixed feelings about as a, as a kid. But I, I suppose I understood that we we needed to look after our stock too. And on one occasion, my dad came back into town and he said to me, Mark, Mark, come out to the car, I've got something to show you. And so I went out there, and he had a little bundle in the back seat of the car, and he reached in, and he had this young fox that he'd actually caught in a trap. And I was, you know, transfixed by this kind of wild animal that he had in his hands and he took inside our house. And I was thinking, what's going to happen here, you know? And my dad proceeded to dress the wound on its leg and he then made an enclosure for it out the back and we basically kept it as a pet. And I won't give away what happens in that story because it's kind of pivotal to the broader novel as well. But I had real intrigue about that moment in my life because it was one of my my first insights into really some of the complexities of adulthood and of parenthood. And it was that same kind of intrigue that took me back to that young voice. And that's really where the writing of the others
0: began. But that's one of the puzzling aspects of this book because that story makes its way into the novel, but you wonder why this boy's father actually does that. It's perplexing. That's right.
3: One of the intriguing elements about the father is that he's a complex guy. He's certainly got light and shade to him. He loves his son. He, He cares for his son, but he has this brutal edge to him too. And I think that that story of the fox is allegorical to the broader narrative and, and what happens thereafter.
0: Well, it speaks to the duality in the father because they want to kill the vermin because it takes away the stock. But it, here is the father saving something he has set out to
3: destroy. That's right. And, you know, i it's funny when I've been out talking about this book, less people think that Jacob is me, and that's certainly not the case, because if I look deeply into what inspired me to write this story... I think it's probably got deeper roots in my father's relationship with his father because my dad grew up during the Second World War in Italy, that they lived on a very remote property in north central Italy in a stone house out in the middle of nowhere. And my dad was the second eldest of, of seven children and, that, and they lived a what was really a subsistence kind of existence. You know, They had no running water, they had no electricity or anything like that. And on top of that, my grandfather was quite a brutal guy. He was violent toward his kids, toward um, my grandmother, a womanizer, a drunk. And my dad was kind of brought up in this environment. And I suppose, like, looking at my dad, my dad always carried that experience with him. He, He never spoke about it very much, but he was always really determined not to repeat the sins of his father. And I suppose one of the questions which I think drove me to write this novel was around the extent to which those early experiences shape us as adults. And they certainly have an influence, but do they ultimately dictate how we become? You know, it's not something I think I necessarily answer with this book, but that's what drove it.
0: Well, there are then connections with what you are saying now, because Jacob and his father almost live in what seems like a post-apocalyptic world. They are isolated. There's the spectre of a plague beyond the farm. There are the others who could come along and take things away. So it becomes a case of them relying on each other for survival.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's a very uh, difficult world they're in. It's the only world that Jacob has known. He's got some vague memories of his mother who's buried up on the hill outside their property. But the father, as we see through this diary form in which the story is told as Jacob's recording kind of the goings on of the farm and his experiences with his father, We, we see the father is increasingly protective over his son, if not paranoid and, and warning of these dangers outside the land and, and of the others. The, like many young boys, Jacob's curiosity really gets the better of him, you know, and he ha- he has to venture outside the land against his father's wishes. And, and that's really when he makes what is a, a shocking discovery, which makes him question everything that he's been told.
0: But Jacob has been learning by looking at the encyclopedia, by looking at dictionaries. So his perspective of life is rather limited he's also reading his father the gold tooth the fist on the table and this means he's got a very innocent perspective of life and he is reliant on his father
3: that's right and he is interesting because I think often we underestimate the ability of children to really read the electricity in a room and, and what's going on with adults and what's happening between the lines and you know, in facial expressions and, and just the atmosphere. And Jacob is like a sponge for that. And he, he's really trying to read and understand his father as best he can. I think he, he loves his father, he respects his father, but he's also confused about elements of their life. And I suppose the use of the encyclopedias of the dictionary to to kind of give some meaning to what he's experiencing. and He's trying to come to grips with it. But even those, you know, have their limitations, which, which he discovers.
0: But there are also things that go beyond that learning, because when some of the lambs die, uh, Jacob virtually ritualizes or performs a ceremony for them, and that's almost beyond what his father has taught him. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I suppose he's searching
3: for meaning and he's searching for understanding of what death means and what life means. And he's experiencing that on the farm. He's seeing that in the animals that he loves. He asks his father at various times, you know, what happens when you die? Um, And the father tries to explain that, you know, sometimes there's a priest, sometimes there's a church. And they say prayers and, you know, but it doesn't really change anything. But I think that Jacob doesn't necessarily accept that. And he he wants a better explanation. He wants a deeper understanding and seeks to create his own in a way. And I think the use of the dictionary, the encyclopedia, and, and even the illustrations that he makes too, I, I think we in some ways see an expression of his subconscious. And the reader, I suppose, as, a, as an adult reader, we're reading between the lines, really. We're, we're getting a deeper picture than what Jacob is presenting on the page, just through our more sophisticated adult understanding of the world.
0: One of the revelations that Jacob comes across, and I think we're not giving anything away, is that he learns to lie. That's an interesting discovery. Well, it's
3: part of our adult life, isn't it, though, David? Like we, we kind of get by sometimes with white lies and bigger lies than white lies. And I think that's a big moment for Jacob. He's fearful of lying. He doesn't want to lie to his father. But I suppose it is partly that coming of age too, that he, he's recognising that in order to do what he wants to do, and to have his own identity, he needs to sometimes bend the rules and the rules of his father. And, and, and those rules, as you know, are, are fairly strict and the punishments be, can be quite severe. So he, he's certainly a brave kid, you know. And, and I think that w- one of the things that attracted me to that young voice is, is the imaginative world that's incredibly vivid and beautiful. And I think that that's the wonderful thing about. Childhood and about children is that they can often see the beauty in even the most grim circumstances, and and that's something I really wanted to bring to the page with Jacob.
0: As you've already alluded to, there is quite a shocking discovery that he makes, but Jacob also learns another major lesson, and that is we have to do terrible things, and this is where the novel ends when the boy comes back as a young man, knowing that he's about to do something terrible. So is that what becoming an adult actually means? Well, David, I think I'll I'll leave that
3: to the reader to draw their own conclusions about that. But I think that partly that circling back for for Jacob uh, and when he's faced with that moment where he has to decide whether or not to do something terrible, I think what we're seeing is an expression of that nature versus nurture. To, to what extent, again, ha- have those early experiences shaped him? I think in adulthood, we're, we're all faced with moments where you know, our heart might be going one way and our head goes the other. And we all carry with us that inner child, it's the same inner child that throws tantrums, but can also be be loving and, and gentle. But the adult mind and the adult world, you know, brings a, a different dimension to bear. And, and in that moment at the end, I, I, I really want the reader left with that question as to whether or not we do have to do uh, terrible things And and that's certainly something that Jacob has to to face throughout this book.
0: Well, he's basically going back to his past, having to account for it now that he has, in fact, learned, which is the process he's going through all the way through the novel. So if the listener wants to find out what the cataclysmic uh, events are in The Others, they need to read Mark Brandy's book, The Others, and it's a hashet release. So, Mark, thank you once again for talking with me. It was wonderful to chat with you, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.